Because you found your place in the book of 1st John chapter 4. 1st John chapter 4 for the preaching of God's word. And I'll be reading from verse 14 down to verse 16. 1st John chapter 4 and verse 14. The Bible says, And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him, and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for salvation. Thank you for the price that was paid on Calvary's cross so that we can be redeemed. Dear Lord, we are humbled by the fact that you would love us to pay such a steep price for our redemption. I pray, dear Lord, that as we reflect and focus on what you did to demonstrate your love to us, that it would produce in us the fruit of righteousness and the changed life as a result of you living inside us. Lord, I pray that you would give me the words you'll have me to say. I pray that there will be a source of encouragement, a source of strength, but also a challenge to help us to live lives pleasing to you. Thank you for the power of your Holy Spirit that you have given to us to give us what we need to become more like you. Bless in a very special way. Speak as only you can do. Cleanse me of sin and empty of self. Fill me with the precious Holy Spirit that I may preach what thus said the Lord. And will be careful to give you all the honor, glory, and praise. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you so much for standing. You'll be seated. Courtrooms are places that none of us would really desire to be especially when we have to be on the witness stand or be a defendant. But suffice it to say, if we are observers from a distance, I'm sure you would agree with me that these places are places of drama, filled with intrigue, as lawyers and attorneys utilize strategy and their skills of speaking and persuasion to sway juries and judges to render verdicts in their favor. However, despite all of the strategies that I employed, the most basic and convincing premise on which verdicts are rendered should continue always to be evidence. If the evidence is lacking, the case is weak. And when the evidence is convincing, the case is strong. When it comes to living the Christian life, there ought to be evidence for recognizing that we are born again. Amen? There ought to be evidence that convinces others who 
look at our lives that we are indeed born again. And let me submit to each and every one of us here tonight and any person under the sound of my voice who names the name of Christ, the evidence ought to be strong. It ought to be convincing. Uh, any individual ought to be able to make a strong case. Now listen, I have no doubt that that person is indeed a child of God. It ought to be convincing. And in the book of 1 John, as we have been seeing for quite some time, the apostle who walked with Jesus and talked with him and laid upon his breast said and give gives a number of distinctive characteristics, if you will, of God's servants that ought to be clearly evident. One ought not to have to search real hard to determine if a person is a child of God. John points out that there are some Christian distinctives. There are some things that are evident and ought to be evident in the child of God that are non-existent in a person who is not. It ought to pop out. And we have seen a few of these characteristics in the past weeks. And we notice in chapter 4 and verse 7 to 11, there ought to be a desire in every believer to pattern the sovereign. In other words, it ought to be our life's endeavor to be more like God. Can you imagine that? That God wants us to be like him. And John points out, listen, no better way than to be like God than to pattern him when it comes to this thing called love. He says in verse number seven, beloved, let us love one another for love is of God. Since we are to pattern the sovereign. It ought to be evident in our lives. It ought to manifest itself in how we treat other people and how we love God. He says, he that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. This we ought to pattern the sovereign. But we saw, secondly, not only we ought to pattern the sovereign, but a second distinctive characteristic of a child of God is that he or she must possess the spirit of God. Verse number 12 says, No man hath seen God at any time. If we love one another, look at this, God does what? Dwelleth in us, and his love is perfected in us. In other words, God, through the third person of the Godhead, listen, comes and lives inside us. What a privilege. What a blessing. What a supernatural miracle that a child of God would have the Holy Spirit living inside them. He says this ought to be evident. The Holy Spirit is the, is the, is the one given the responsibility to help us to mature as a believer. It's God's desire that we grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And that is done through the working of the Holy Spirit in our lives. What a blessing. If a person does not have the Holy Spirit of God, my friend, that person is not a child of God. John says that person must possess the Spirit. 
the child of God ought to have a burning desire to pattern the sovereign. But tonight in the verses that I just read, I want you to notice in these verses, it points out something that we often, I believe, tend to overlook and minimize and not realize the importance of it, that a child of God, make no mistake about it, ought to profess the Savior. Amen? Ought to profess the Savior. Look at what John says in verse number 14. The first few words. It says, and we have what? Seen. We have seen. Now, John here was speaking from a standpoint of having been one of the 12 disciples who walked and talked with Jesus and saw the miracles that he did. But I want us to understand that when John says we have seen, he was also giving light to the fact that every child of God ought to have a personal experience as it relates to Jesus Christ. A personal experience. He says, we have seen. And if you're a born-again believer, you ought to be able to reflect and look back on that time when you met the Lord. I'm not talking about in person, in physical, his bodily presence. But when you met him and he changed you and saved you by the grace of God, my friend, that is a personal experience that ought to stand out in your mind. It's a personal experience. It's not any one of those group experiences. Man, man, we all just join in this thing together. Listen, you must have met him personally. John says, we have seen And there's something about having a personal experience. You know why it's so important? You don't need verification from another person. Because you had your own personal experience. You met the Lord. You don't have to wait for corroboration of another story, for your story to have merit. Why? Your personal experience stands on its own. John says, We have seen. Let me give a word of caution. and I find it's something that I'm saying in multiple messages because I believe it's so relevant to this thing called living the Christian life. But be mindful of religious activity that is not supported by personally meeting God. Religious routine And religious activity is one of these things that is really leading people to a devil's hell. Why? Because it's like fool's goals. It's like, well, I go to church. I do this. I do that. Have you met God personally? We meet the Lord by responding in obedience to the Holy Spirit of God. And it's no accident that the Apostle uh, John here uh, speaks of professing the Savior after having spoken of possessing the Spirit. Because you profess out of your experience. Look at what John says. He says, we have seen. That's the personal experience. But he continues on. He says, and what? 
and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Now, because of that personal experience, because of that, that, that supernatural transformation that has taken place on the inside, a personal experience ought to lead to public expression. He says, we testify that individual, because of their personal experience, that person is now able and willing and happy to make a public expression, a public confession of their faith in Jesus Christ. You see, my friend, confession with the mouth is a part of salvation. I reiterate that oftentimes I fear that this aspect is minimized and trivialized and even overlooked altogether because I believe that we often recognize, rightly so, that God does deal with us at the heart level. I say all the time, this thing of serving God is hard business. And so oftentimes I fear that because it is hard business, we miss the aspect of testifying what God has done in our heart by confessing with our mouth. But it's important to understand that these things go together. They are inextricably linked. Luke chapter 6 and verse 45 says, A good man out of the good treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is good. And an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is evil. For of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. You ever find yourself having said something and you say, Oh my, oops, it slipped out. If it, sl- it can't slip out if it wasn't slipped in. And the things that we say ought to be a reminder to us that they are things that are in us. Look at how important this matter of testifying, confessing with the mouth is when it comes to this matter of salvation. In Romans chapter 10, very familiar passages to all of us. We recite these verses like, so normal because they're familiar. But look at Romans chapter 10 and verse 9. Very familiar verses in the word of God. That if thou shalt confess with thy what? Mouth. The Lord Jesus. And shalt believe in thine heart heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Here's what God is saying. He's simply saying that when I've touched your heart, listen, your mouth can't help but testify about it. For the scripture saith, whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall do what? 
call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. My friend, if God has done a supernatural working in your heart, don't be ashamed of what he has done for you. Testify, proclaim, uh, give a testimony of what God has done in your heart. Do we realize how truly amazing salvation is? It's life changing. It's destiny impacting. And when we think of the magnitude of what Jesus did when he saved us, when he redeemed us, it ought to lead to us testifying about it, proclaiming his goodness. I mean, we know how it is when we have some good news that, that's bursting inside us and we can't wait to get it out to tell somebody else. But well, what about the good news of the gospel? I mean, if we truly are ashamed that we are so stifled and stymied, it would lend to beg the, the question, did he really do anything on the inside? John says, because of a personal experience, I can't help but make a public expression of what has taken place on the inside. Notice in verse number 15, he, he gives what I call the, the proof of the encounter. He makes a very definitive statement about the significance and the importance of this confession. He says, whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him, and he in God. John makes a very uh, definitive statement about this matter of confession. Now, I know that we can say a lot of things that we don't uh, believe or we don't think. We, I mean, we can be loose with our mouths, but John is here saying that, listen, when it comes to what has taken place in a person's heart, uh, that person is willing to confess from a heart of sincerity that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him and he in God. That tells to us the importance of confessing with our mouth what God has done for us. He said it's the proof of whether or not something really and truly took place. Wow. You know what happens when you're in a court of law and there is no evidence? What happens to the case? The case is dismissed. The case is thrown out. My friend, when it comes to this matter of Christian distinctiveness, if the evidence continues not to show up with regard to the distinctiveness of being a Christian, the question is, are many people sadly fooling themselves about the authenticity of their conversion? My friend, we need to take the Bible at its word. Is the reason that an individual not, is not able to confess, might it be, I can't judge that by the way, but might it be that 
it is a sign that change has not really taken place on the inside. There's not really something there to truly testify about. There's not that personal experience that burns in the heart that leads to the mouth speaking about what has taken place. John says this is proof of the encounter. Notice in verse number 16, finally, This is what I call a powerful engagement. This is amazing. When it comes to this matter of salvation, that's why I have continued to reiterate that salvation does not come about but from just simply saying a prayer with no meaning. A transformation on the inside is not about reciting a prayer loosely. It's not about trying to get a get-out-of-hell-free card. Look at what John says. Why it's such a powerful engagement. It says, and we have, what? Known. First of all, what John is speaking to the fact here is that as a child of God, he's recalling, and as a disciple, to his personal experience. He says, we have known. He says, listen, I'm not asking you. I was there. I saw Jesus. I was privy to witness what he did. I was privy to to the the miracles. I was privy to his, his, his death. I was privy to the fact that he was indeed the son of God. I know it because I saw it. You know, sometimes we say locally, when we're telling somebody something and they seem to doubt us. And we, what we say to them, he said, we say, you know, for those who might be listening via, you know, who might not be West Indian and might not understand the colloquial, but what we say, he said, me not ask, you know, I tell me, I tell you. So I'm not asking you whether what I'm saying is correct. I was there. I know this for a fact. Isn't that what we say when we're convinced? It was our personal experience. John says, we have known. But when it comes to salvation, salvation is not just about head knowledge. Salvation is just not about whether, well, I know the Bible. I've been to church. I've heard all the stories. My wife and I just ran into an individual at the supermarket and was asking him about coming to church and talking to him about the Lord. Listen, this person can quote all the Bible scriptures. That doesn't impress God. Just because we know verses, just because we know the Bible backward and forward, John says we have known, but listen to the next part. He says, and what? Believed believed the love that God had to us. In other words, that knowledge of the word of God, of the son of God, has to be applied to your heart. If that application to the heart does not take place, my friend, you are lost. Let 
it has to be applied. The love that God hath to us. That God is love. And he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God. So John says, man, I know some things. That's all well and good. I have an intellectual understanding of what took place and who God is. But until I believed with all my heart, I applied it to my heart, that love that he showed, I received it. I accepted it. I embraced it. I'm appreciative of that sacrifice on Calvary's cross. What love is this? That you would lay down your life for me, a wretched sinner. When I think about that, how could I still be the same? That love is transforming. That's real belief. Belief must affect behavior. If it does not affect behavior, John, James says, listen, that's not really faith. That's not belief. So John says, we have known and believed. And because of that belief, my friend, when that belief is genuine, it produces a supernatural engagement. We can live in God and God can live in us. And it is that supernatural aspect of God living inside us that makes all the difference in the world. God living inside us. My pastor in Virginia used to say, how in the world can a great big God, man, we're talking about the God of the universe, live inside you and me and he not stick out anywhere. That's illogical. That's impractical. I mean, he's such a great big God, he must show up somewhere in your life. If he's not showing up anywhere, I can assure you, listen, he must not be there. This great big God is going to affect how you act. He's going to affect how you talk. He's going to affect where you go. He's going to affect what you do. He's going to affect what you wear. He's going to affect how you think. He's going to affect your attitude, your actions, my friends. If there's no evidence that he is there, that is a problem. John says, do we understand that this is a powerful engagement that we are living in God and God is living in us? What a privilege. But what a great responsibility. 
to show him to a lost and dying world. And by the way, when this great big God is living inside us, I mean, because he's so impactful and because he's so big, we shouldn't even have to be trying hard for him to show up. It shouldn't require a great deal of effort. Because he's so big. He's so great. He's so awesome. We're not talking about an angel living inside us now. We're talking about the king of kings and the lord of lords. The perfect God of the universe himself living inside us. Are we struggling for evidence? My friend, that's not real salvation. John says there's something distinctive about being a child of God. And it ought to produce evidence. We don't all of a sudden become all that God wants us to be overnight. By the way, it's a continuous progression until he comes again. But it's the will of God that we grow in grace, that we mature, that we don't stay at the same place. For the duration of our so-called sojourn here on earth, God ought to make a difference. And he wants to make that difference. But are we willing to let him? He's given us the gift of his Holy Spirit. John says, there's some distinctiveness. There's some signature characteristics that ought to be evident in a child of God. This love that God shed abroad in our hearts, that he demonstrated on Calvary's cross, is life-changing. God is love. And if we have God, that love has to make a difference. We're going to want to pattern this suffering. If it were enough that God would die for us, he gives us of himself. His Holy Spirit indwells the believer to mature us to mold us, to shape us, to guide us into his will for our life, to give us the empowerment to do things that otherwise would not be possible in our flesh. Our flesh was never intended to accomplish the will of God. Things that are of the flesh cannot please God. So without the Holy Spirit, we're doomed. But with that Holy Spirit, we can accomplish the will of God. And when we have possession of that Spirit, we are going to have a desire to profess the Savior. We're going to want to stand up and say, listen, I know I might be nervous. 
I know you might be mocking or laughing, but God has been too good to me. I got to profess what he's done in my life. He's saved me. He's changed me. And I'm not ashamed of it. He says, whosoever shall be ashamed of me here on earth, I will be ashamed of him before my Father, which is in heaven. Whatever that transformation is on the heart, it ought to produce a confession, an expression of what God did on the inside. May it be that we are not just professing believers or associated with a church, a denomination, a group of people, but maybe that even if we had to be isolated in a place where no one knows us, that those individuals could look at us and say, there's something distinctive. There's something different. There's something that's sticking out. There's something that's standing out that is just different than everybody else. They may not even know what it's attributed to. But when you approach, you'll be able to say to them, it's all about God and what he has done in my life. This great big God is living inside me. And I can't help it. He just keeps sticking out.